0: Welcome to McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. I'm KRTV KXLH anchor, Tim McGonagall. Thomas Nybo's career as a storyteller has taken him to some of the most interesting and dangerous places in the world. Through his stunning photographs, compelling video, and descriptive writing, the Helena native and University of Montana graduate has told amazing, inspirational, and sometimes heartbreaking stories for CNN, PBS, The New York Times, and more. He's had a front row seat to Earthquake Aftermath in Haiti, the war in Afghanistan, the journey of Syrian immigrants through Europe, and most recently came face-to-face with silverback gorillas in the Congo. Recently, we talked about his journey from Helena to working in more than 100 countries, his unexpected venture into homeschooling, and what's next on his agenda. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Thomas Nybo. Thomas, I think uh, the last time I I talked to you was uh, we were probably playing kickball in Triangle Park or maybe uh, flag football on the... Cathedral lawn and Helena which sometimes wasn't flag football it was straight out tackle football without the pads if you if you remember.
1: Oh, it was it was it was a rough era. <laughs> those <laughs> those triangle park
0: battles were epic for sure. Epic, that's right. Uh, I, I keep watching sports center late at night to see if they might have uh, some classic battles but I've, I've yet to see them but uh, <laughs> how how have you been doing uh, it's it's been a long time and uh, what a what a career it's been for you. Yeah, I'm doing great.
1: Since uh, leaving Helena, I mean, I've, I've traveled the world over 100 countries since, uh, since the spring of 1989, leaving Helena High School, and it's, it's been a fascinating ride, that's for sure. And I love getting back to Montana, of course. And yeah, times are pretty good, you know, considering the COVID and the insanity of, of, of that, but right, yeah.
0: Right. Well, uh, talk about uh, you know this this journey of yours that uh, led you to become a photographer and a filmmaker. Is, is that something that you uh, always wanted to to do? Well, it's interesting. I, I started out actually wanting to be a writer and got a
1: degree in creative writing in Missoula and quickly learned that nobody wants to hire aspiring novelists. And so I stuck around and got a journalism degree, a print degree, actually. Mm-hmm. And my first job out of school wasn't far from Great Falls, just up the road in Shoto. So I spent a year there writing, a reporter and a photographer. Loved it. An amazing experience. I think it was a perfect year in my life. And at the end of the year, I wound up through a, a Helena connection. Jack Womack actually got me an interview at CNN. I'd never really thought about going into broadcast journalism. Although in college at Missoula, a couple of friends and I bought a little Hi8 camera and Uh, Made a great disaster of a documentary kayaking film in Mexico. So that was my experience with broadcast journalism. But I got hired as a writer at CNN and I missed the reporting aspect, actually interacting with people. And so I learned how to shoot and edit my own material, kind of like, uh, you know, first year reporters do in local markets, right? And it really kind of clicked for me at CNN. And I was one of the first journalists, they asked to be an embedded reporter in Iraq, so I was a war reporter. And then after that, one of my bosses was hired at UNICEF, United Nations Children's Fund, and he said, "Hey, uh, you could you know keep going back and doing some work in Iraq or Afghanistan over the next couple of years, or I could send you around the world for a couple of years, reporting on um, efforts to improve the lives of children in dangerous situations." And I said, "That sounds pretty interesting." And here we are, seventeen years later. You know, over a hundred countries and, and counting. So that's in a nutshell how how it all came together.
0: All right. So uh, yeah, seventeen years. That's that's a long time. And uh, you know, since that time, uh, you, you got a family of your own. Uh, talk about uh, how do how do they feel about you going to some of these uh, some of these hotspots? Uh, sometimes exotic, but uh, <sighs> a lot of times pretty dangerous.
1: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think they're young enough, so they're seven and eight. Where to them, it just all seems kind of larger in life because it's it's a little ridiculous when I can say, oh, I've got you know friends in Afghanistan or Haiti, or you know I, the last four years most of my work has been in the Congo, and there's always something interesting happening there—natural disasters, erupting volcanoes, Ebola outbreaks. So it's it captures their imagination. Uh, I I hope they don't try to replicate it themselves. Um, but at this point they find it pretty fascinating. And I usually historically spend about half the year out of the country. And then when I'm home, I'm home. I don't have to really do any other work other than, you know, some wrapping up some edits or or whatnot. And, and for the past year, and I've been homeschooling the kids when I'm, I'm back. So we just have a lot of fun and they love hearing stories from the road. And where is home for you now, Thomas? That's a good question, Tim. (laughs) We're technically homeless. um, I moved to CNN in 96 for uh, uh, working with CNN. And in February, we sold our house there. And we have a lot that we're going to build on at some point. But we saw a real opportunity with COVID and homeschooling. So we're kind of bouncing around. Um, My real passion, other than photography and storytelling, is snowboarding. And last winter, We spent the winter in Utah and we're going to be going back to Utah and Colorado for the entirety of the winter. And so we're just kind of gearing up for a long winter and really have no home. Although it likely could wind up being Atlanta again, but Mm -hmm. we'll be spending November through March in a combination of Colorado and Utah.
0: I can hear all the uh, kids out there right now saying, I want to be homeschooled and I want to <laughs> snowboard, uh, for, <laughs> for my own. but I know there's more to it, uh, more to it than that. But, uh, so Thomas, you've been to over a hundred countries. Uh, and I'd like to talk about some of those assignments because, uh, following you on Facebook and Instagram and, uh, your, your website, which, uh, thomasnibo.com, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, just some amazing journeys and some amazing things that you've seen uh, and and one that really stands out. And, and I know that when people get on that Thomasnibo.com and they look under the media tab, they can see a CNN interview uh, that you did about uh, uh, an assignment that you had where you were documenting the uh, journeys of immigrants across Europe. Uh, talk a little bit about that and uh, that that experience for you.
1: That was a really powerful assignment. It was a rare occasion where UNICEF gave me and I was working with another photographer and a producer and a translator basically carte blanche to t- track down interesting stories if you remember the majority of of the migrants were Syrians pushed out of Syria and they were coming across in rafts and landing in Greece and then heading up through Europe whenever they could and so we did two cycles basically literally helping people off these rafts sometimes catching the babies of of mothers would hand them to you and then documenting those journeys through you know i spent uh i snuck onto a train with a group of immigrants a mix of afghan and syrian immigrants traveling to europe and you know spent five hours interviewing and photographing them on a train you know and and we'd hit checkpoints serbia croatia austria germany you know, I ran into one boy, he was, uh, how old was he? He was about 14 or 15 and half of his body was paralyzed and he was living in a tent in, in Serbia. And I said, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, my, my school was bombed by the Taliban and my family put together all their money and, and this is as far as, as, as it took me. And it was just a heartbreaking story. And I, I asked him, I said, does your mother know where you are? and he said no i haven't spoken to her in 2 weeks and i said do you know your phone number and we filmed it and i i, I called his mom and he, it was an amazing moment he said hey I've, I've i've met some people and they're good people and they're 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 trying to help me and I mean, it was very humbling and and real we hear especially now with afghanistan you know being taken over by the taliban again and and here was an example of a kid and we helped him out right you know we gave him enough money and, and bought him a phone so he can stay in contact with his mother, but that might've been the most powerful moment for me. Everyone had a really tough story, either coming from Syria or or Afghanistan, but those moments where the the struggle was still happening, and I I moved north with a group of, I guess, uh, middle school and high school age kids who also came from Afghanistan, and they had filmed part of their journey riding in the trunk of a Toyota Corolla and then riding in the back of these pickups racing across the desert. I mean, it was straight out of a movie and by no means was, was an easy landing guaranteed.
0: And, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, a lot of the times that, you know, myself that works in the media and some of the things we see from, I guess what you say, the main mainstream media, we see some of the, some of the bad stuff, but you, you get to see, I mean, obviously you've seen your share of, of bad stuff, but, uh, you get moments like that that, that might not make the, the nightly news or whatever that uh, have really got to make this a gratifying experience for you.
1: I'm really driven by storytelling. People say, are you a photographer? Are you a filmmaker? Are you a writer? I'm really interesting, interested in storytelling. That's one of the reasons I like your daily posts, right? The friendly face. Oh, I mean, thanks. you can be in Great Falls, Montana or Kabul, Afghanistan or Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Everyone has a powerful story. And Mm -hmm. I I, I always try to approach each situation with complete humility. I'm a guest. I'm in their country. They don't need to tell me anything. And I think that has served me pretty well. I think they recognize me, I hope, as a friendly face and as a sympathetic ear and as someone who's not interested in politics in the moment and, and any kind of a spin, I want to know about their, their life, their struggle, what's working for them, what's not working for them. And it's, it's been the most enriching experience. I mean, it's 17 years, like I've said, and I, you know, I mean, growing up in Helena, I hadn't really thought of, I had a very small worldview, right. And even after I went to CNN and I spent a six-month gap year at 28 traveling throughout Central America, Mexico, and Cuba. And that was nothing compared to just being dropped into these situations over and over in the most trying moments of people's lives and trying to make that connection without with without an agenda. But just to try to connect and understand, oh, this is a, a mother whose husband has been murdered and she's got five kids and they're on the run. That's pretty powerful stuff and for someone to share that story with me means a lot to me and i think any journalist worth their salt approaches these situations and tries to capture the dignity of the moment whether they're royalty whether they're living in a slum whatever the moment like let's 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 give these people a fair shake i mean we were lucky we were born actually we lived on the same street right Ninth uh, Avenue. You know, right. we happened to grow up in this wonderful community, a couple blocks apart. Sure. My, mother, my mother's ha- house is still there. I'm going to probably go visit her in a <laughs> couple weeks. But uh, dignity is an important word to me. Humility is an important word to me. And I carry the weight of these stories on my shoulders. And I couldn't live with myself if I felt I was being disingenuous. And I, I'm not, I, I don't need to, Portray them in a great light. I just want to authentically tell their story and share their story with the rest of the world. And I feel if I do that, then I've I've done my job.
0: Now, Thomas, I know you're also uh, aware, obviously, of what's going on in Afghanistan right now, uh, and and you've been there. I mean, you've done some documenting documenting of uh, things there too. Talk about your time in Afghanistan and what what that was like.
1: You know, Afghanistan is tough. I I I made a post in the Congo. And my two favorite countries that I've worked in are the Congo and Haiti. And I I had a post and I said, the tough countries always break your heart. Mm -hmm. And I can apply that to Afghanistan because what happened after 9-11, there was a very beautiful thing in Afghanistan with the suppression of the Taliban. UNICEF in particular really focused on recognizing the humanity in girls and giving them an opportunity to learn to read, to, to not have to wear a full burqa, to actually enjoy life and, you know, put off marriage for as many years as they can, get an education, you know, actually develop as human beings and interact with with other people. And that was the focus of my work. I probably did, I don't know, five or six trips to Afghanistan. I covered a lot of ground, Kabul, uh, Bamiyan, Mazar-e-Sharif, uh, Pancher Valley uh, Jalalabad a lot of ground a lot of great stories particularly focusing on the empowerment of girls and i mean my heart aches just thinking if if they're going to be going backwards on that that note so it's it's a maddening country and that's one of the reasons it's a tough country that <laughs> again is is breaking my heart because things can fall apart so quickly. I mean, it was just, you know, we've had this, whatever, 20-year window where, where a lot of good happened. I mean, there were a lot of deaths, military deaths, civilian deaths, but Afghanistan is a complicated place. You can't just change it overnight. But I really enjoyed my time in Afghanistan and it's, it's tough to see what's happening now. I think, you know, it's not really our job to be there indefinitely. I mean, it was ungodly expensive and we can't care more than the Afghan people. I mean, at some point, they've got to carry the torch moving forward, and that didn't happen.
0: Uh, being over there as a, as a journalist, uh, as an American journalist, uh, talk about uh, the challenges of that and gaining the trust. I mean, because you're taking these these pictures, you're taking this video. Uh, did you have a hard time gaining their trust because, because you were an American? And a lot of them have been told for a long time, America's the enemy.
1: No. And and in fact, a lot of even the Taliban recruits, it's all economic. I was interviewing a 16-year-old boy. I did a story on this boy. He was broke. He was just collecting garbage to get plastic that he could recycle for a dollar or two a day. His family tried to help him sneak into Iran to get a construction job. He was captured by the police that day and tortured and shipped back. And one of the things he told me was, the Taliban is offering me, you know, five or $6 a day to join. And that's the reality of it. So for the most part, I find people are people. And even I I spent a summer in Cuba, you know, and there's, you see a lot of the, this was back when Fidel was alive, you know, Oh, down with America, but you know, people are people. If they can connect with you one-on-one, of course, you don't want to be with, with a group of militants that are going to, you know, remove your head from your body on camera. But, uh, if you do your homework, and I always rely heavily on I, 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 one of the things I always hear from, you know, whether it's a, a translator, a fixer, a bodyguard, whatever, they'll always tell me, don't worry unless you see me worry. If you see me worry, then you can worry. Okay. And so uh, I, I, I put myself out there, um, maybe a little more than I should sometimes. But um, for the most part, there was a funny moment in... I I did a shot, a frontline documentary in November of 2002 on Hezbollah, kind of a post 9-11 look at Hezbollah in Lebanon. And it was just me and this producer, David Lewis. And we went up to this little town called Baalbek, which was Hezbollah central, a lot of military training grounds. We actually got in traffic and there was a, a, a famous criminal who had hijacked a plane. And then they had a little Hezbollah gift shop with you know, your favorite martyr chants on CD and little keychains of your favorite martyr. And we were leaving the Hezbollah gift shop. And this cutest little kid you've ever seen, about five years old, runs up to me, said, you're American. He smiled at me. And I said, yes. And he said, death to America. And then he ran off. And, you know, I mean, he didn't mean it, but clearly he'd been indoctrinated. And it was... It's an interesting moment. I didn't take it personally, but it was also very revelatory of the sentiment in that particular valley of
0: our country. Yeah. Thomas, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, it's now been 20 years since, uh, since 9-11. And uh, what what are your thoughts on that? What, uh, what do you think we've done right? What remains to be done?
1: It's a tough one. I mean, I spent, you know, time obviously embedded in in Iraq. I think the money that we spent on the wars is a mistake. Uh, I have I, I support the military. I have a lot of friends who are in the military who were in the military. But if you look at Afghanistan and ask ourselves what what did we get out of it? Now I think we it, we did need to go to Afghanistan. I mean, they were harboring the terrorists who you know flew planes into the twin towers, but. We had very little chance of turning things around in Afghanistan and yeah, trillions of dollars. And if you just look at what we could have done in our own country. So I always advocate for a more honest conversation. It just seems in this era, it's very toxic. You know, it's like you're you're red or you're blue, you're this or you're that. It's like, can we just be Americans? It's we, we seemed a bit adrift after the cold war, it's, it's almost like we need a common enemy to come together when we don't really have a common enemy, then it's just like, we have to divide ourselves. And anytime you politicize, you know, something like the military, it's, it's not always good. Right. Um, so it's, I spend my, a lot of time in, you know, dangerous places, but we also have to recognize the limits of what we can do. And, you know, in 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 my little experience person to person i like to 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 think that at least you know this group of people who've encountered me in an america and you know trying to to help them build a school or you know get a water well so their their daughters aren't spending all day fetching water and not going to school uh, you know helping migrants escape a difficult situation so that's one of the ways where you know i try to do my part and feel good about it but i mean it's a it's funny i hear a lot you know oh it's crazy times we live in with COVID. it's never been like this or 9-11 it's never been like this and and my response is always when has history not been crazy right like my grandfather's both fought in world war ii one was a medic in france the other uh, you know, was an infantryman in, in the Philippines. And so it's just like, I don't know. It was pretty crazy. Then you go back to 1918 with the Spanish flu. That was pretty crazy. You know, just before, you know, our time, or even while we were born, you know, Vietnam was still, you know, going on. So I guess I have a higher comfort level, like even with COVID, you know, we've pretty much sequestered ourselves because the public school experience for our kids to begin with was a bit of a disaster. Just, I mean, I, I don't blame the school. I mean, people hadn't figured stuff out. Right. Oh, so, I mean, Oh, are we going to be virtual? Or are we not going to be virtual? Oh, there's a COVID test. Let's sh- it was just a nightmare. So we're like, Oh, let's just homeschool them and, you know, be as smart as we can. And I mean, it's working, working for us. And so I don't know, I'm pretty good at making the, the most of chaotic situations.
0: Well, uh, you mentioned, uh, Thomas, that uh, your, your two, I guess, favorite countries that you've, you've covered, Haiti and the Congo. What, uh, what, what is it about Haiti? And uh, talk about your time in, in Haiti. What, uh...
1: They have a wider dynamic range. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a bit like the Wild West, especially I went there first in 2010, right after the earthquake in Port-au-Prince. And I did 50 trips there. And I remember I was about a year in and took a deep dive. I bought a motorcycle. I learned, you know, conversational survival, Haitian Creole, and, and really developed an appreciation for the Haitian people and had an apartment, had a house for a while. And it's, it's a fascinating maddening place. I mean, it's, it's, it's also gotten a bad rap. It's the only country in the world where an enslaved people rose up against their oppressors and fought for and captured their own freedom. They overthrew their colonial rulers, France. That's never happened before. And it's complex. It's complicated. And the Haitian people go through every year with hurricanes, tropical storms. It seems that even that the latest episode where this team of Colombian commandos slipped into the country and assassinated the president in his bedroom. I, you wouldn't believe it if it were in a Jack Reacher novel, right? But that's that's Haiti, unfortunately. Even before that, there this year the, there's been a, a horrible problem with kidnapping, not just with rich Haitians, but it's copycat kidnappings where people say, oh, I can kidnap my house cleaner and tell her family to send me money or I'm going to kill her. And sometimes they kill them if they don't get the money. So it's it's the best and the worst of society. But I've spent so much time with Haitians in difficult situations in camps after their houses were destroyed, after cholera, after any number of challenges. And they always have a a sense of humor and a a certain flair for life that has always stuck with me. And a lot of the people I know who've spent similar amounts of time with me there also have a special place in their heart
0: for Haiti. And uh, what about the Congo? Uh, I know you've been there several times and just in fact, recently returned from the Congo. What, what, uh, what makes that so special? It's, it's, it's kind of similar
1: where the equation that, that in, in, in hindsight that, that has, has emerged for countries that I like the most are the countries where I spend the most time. And I spent three months in the Congo this year. I lived there six months last year. I was there three or four months the year before that during just insane situations, you know, two or three Ebola outbreaks, uh, COVID materialized there, you know, natural disasters. I was in Eastern Congo where there's constant fighting and it's, it's a very exciting time. And I, I find I work best in an environment where maybe there are fewer rules and you kind of have to figure things out. And especially if the organization you're working for gives you resources, you know, whether it be motorcycles or UN flights on helicopters or planes and, you know. I was there and did an assignment for Diane Fossey Gorilla fund. So I got to spend a couple of weeks tracking endangered gorillas in the jungle. Like I don't get to do that every day. So I got to do all of this in the Congo. And yes, there's a certain level of insanity and instability there, but the people have weathered these storms with, 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 with a great sense of humor and great pride. And, and I've enjoyed my time there.
0: Um, uh, to talk a little bit about the, the gorilla uh, assignment, I guess, uh, with the Diane Fossey Fund. Because again, that was your, your latest one. And some of the pictures you sent back were, were just amazing.
1: Yeah, what was interesting is a lot of people think of these gorillas in Rwanda. And they're habituated to humans. Like you can go and hang out with them. And they're in a natural park. But I was with a group that Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund was supporting, and they didn't have a natural park. So they were working with landowners to in- in- incentivize them to behave in a way that doesn't kill the gorillas and hiring a lot of the locals to be trackers. And this group, we actually went to two spots. One, the gorillas were not habituated to humans, which means we stay a day behind them. But even then it was a bit of a sleuthing expedition. You'd look for their nests in the trees or in the ground or you know, their scat or half-eaten fruit. So it was it was very exciting and it was so tough. Like the lives that these trackers lead. I mean, it was I got some stomach issues on day like three or four. And man, it was just wiping me out. You know, you're you're carrying a 40-50 pound pack through the jungle, and I mean it's raining all night, every night. Uh, But at the end of it, you really enjoy it and look back at it. And then we went to another spot where they were protected in a national park. And just the first moment you go in there and, you know, you keep your distance for COVID. You know, you're wearing a mask and you're with this family of eight gorillas. The alpha male is, you know, 400 plus pounds. And he just walks by you and stares at you and could snap your neck in a second. But he knows the guides and the trackers really well. That was Yeah. Maybe one of the most exciting moments in my life, you know, the kind of thing you think about as a kid and then you do it as an adult and you're like, yeah, that, that lived up to the hype.
0: What, uh, what scared you more, the gorilla or the Taliban?
1: You know, the (laughs) Taliban, again, I was with these, these guides and these trackers and I follow their lead. If they're not afraid then I'm not going to be afraid, or I'm certainly not going to show it. Um, But even then, it was, I mean, there were just some surreal moments. My first trip to Afghanistan, we had an armored vehicle that picked me up at the airport. And I I tapped on the window and and my driver, who was an ex-Israeli special forces operative, I said, ah, bulletproof glass. And he turned around and smiled at me. And he said, yes, it will withstand uh, shots, four shots from AK-47. And I'm like, only four? (laughs) And and he said, uh, presumably we would be moving very fast. (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. People ask too, oh, you know, you're in these situations that might not be so safeish. might be a little dangerous. How, how, how do you do it? And I think you, you make a decision, you know, especially if you were an embedded w- reporter in Iraq, like you go to that little room in your head before, before the assignment and you, you have to have that reckoning. Am I okay with it or am I not? If you're okay with it, then then jump in. If not, then don't go.
0: All right. Uh, Thomas, how long will you uh, continue this uh, freelancing and and in these dangerous places?
1: I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny because sometimes it's more difficult to adjust to life back in the U S so maybe like the old clipper ship captain, who's been at sea too long. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't I don't know what else I would do if I didn't at least have a part of that in my my life I might be insufferable to my family my family might be looking for you know things to for me to go do
0: yeah. <laughs> and have you ever thought about writing a book about some of these uh adventures and experiences yeah actually it's funny um, I've been working on on some fiction
1: based in the the Congo a thriller okay. set in the Congo um, also kind of a coffee table book that incorporates the photos, but also text. And I think that's my strong suit is really capturing the story. And sometimes that's, I, I love, even more than my website is just follow me on on Facebook, Thomas Naibo on Facebook, and you'll see me smoking a cigar yeah. in the jungle in the Congo. There are no, multiple Thomas Naibos, but that's me. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've been kind of piecing together that kind of coffee table book too, which I think is, is more accessible and everyone who looks at every picture can walk away with, oh, here's a, a face and a name and more often than not a sound bite, something capturing this moment in this person's life, whether they're the victims of genocide, whether, you know, a hurricane, even a, a, a happy moment in their lives. So I think that is something definitely that will be out there and of interest to anyone who follows my international adventures. Yeah,
0: I, I know you mentioned the Jack Reacher novels, and I, I think I read once that uh, you started picking those up not too long ago. And uh, so, so you may be the next, uh, was it Lee Child that writes?
1: The- Lee Child, exactly. It's a, <laughs> it's a pseudonym. But, uh, you know, funny enough, I started writing fiction in high school. You, you may have done the same thing, you know, senior year of high school, they let you take some classes at Carroll. And I took a fiction class with a novelist named Ralph Beer. I still have the story, which is pretty horrible. I found it in storage the other day. But funny enough, it's maybe not that different from the thriller I'm trying to write in the Congo that was more of a thriller set in Montana. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have so much material over the past, you know, actually even more than it's 17 years working with UNICEF. And I was at CNN for eight years before that. Also assignments for the New York Times, for Frontline. So I've, I've had a pretty good run, Tim.
0: All right. Uh, do you have any uh, projects in the works as far as uh, filmmaking projects or uh, freelance work to any other countries soon that, that you know of?
1: You know, I'm pushing everything off until the end of snowboard season. Like it's, okay. it's the one thing in my life where I'm very selfish, <laughs> where I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to block off this amount of time. Uh, Just because I took a a deep dive in the Congo this year and we did it last year and I went like, normally I go 10 times. Like last year I went 56 times and my goal this year is to go a hundred times. I told my son, I said, uh, Hey Micah, you know, I took you snowboarding 25 times last year. I might take you 50 times this year. And he looked at me straight face and he said, I'm not going snowboarding 50 times this year. I'm going (laughs) snowboarding 60 times this year. (laughs) So that, uh, that's going to be my, my, my priority, as well as, of course, educating these, these fresh young minds.
0: Yeah. I've been snowboarding once, and that was enough uh, for me. <laughs> but uh, uh, Skiing, that's a different story.
1: Hey, there you go. There you go. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Helen, a native and journalist, Thomas Naibo. And you can follow his career on his website, thomasnaibo.com, or simply follow him on social media. I welcome your story ideas and feedback. Look for McGonagall's Chronicles on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll be back soon with another interesting guest with a Montana connection. For McGonagall's Chronicles, making Montana connections, I'm Tim McGonagall.